everybody, it's Sound of Group Podcast back for the second to last episode here in 2017. It's a podcast theme. I'm starting for the last two particular episodes, so you're going to get them right here in December before the year ends. And the uh, theme I'm going with is called Color My World, and this is part one of those. Okay, by that I mean Color My World talks about songs that have uh, colors described in them, you know, all the various various shades, I guess, of course, and the primary colors and all that other great stuff. So, you know, it's kind of a... Uh, a very colorful episode, har har. But yeah, that's basically what we're going with in this one is episodes that conjure up that kind of imagery. And uh, so I guess it's kind of artistic in a way, you know what I mean? Like, well, this is the music arts, but uh, visual arts, I guess, kind of a really bit of an offshoot from it. Anyway, so like, for example, you'll hear a song like Red Guitar or something like that, or which is a tune by Loudwinger at the third, but it's not in either of these episodes. <laughs> Spoiler alert. That's the kind of thing I'm just you know, proposing, telling you, is uh, part of this. Anyway, that's, uh, you know, now that we've laid out the gist of that, I'm sorry it's not a holiday-themed one. I've done that before, though. If you really like that, go back through the archives or request it. Uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, I think it's been deleted long ago from my iTunes profile, but that's because I can only hold about 10 on it at a time. So anyway, we'll... Uh, we'll uh, delve into that some more here how about this uh and tee up the first track for this particular part one of this theme the first track is from the great country singer who later uh explored her more uh bluegrass roots Annie Lou Harris and this is from her 2000 album Red Dirt Girl it's a little bit of an anomaly in her uh catalog in that she uh, co-wrote or fully wrote 11 of the 12 tracks on the album, whereas normally she was known for uh, covering and, uh, you know, interpreting other people's material. So that's the first track here, as you just heard me lay out. Why don't we get to it, huh? I'm going to kick into gear right away here on this uh, second to last, basically fifth podcast episode in 2017 for the Sound of Group podcast. I'm Evan Dobigan, and this is exclusively, almost exclusively, I always like to say co-exclusively, hosted on the notthepublicbroadcaster.com, great culture, music, arts, sports, entertainment website. Check it out while you have the chance. But also my own website, musicofevansmind.blogspot.com. Anyway, here's Emmy Lou with Red Dirt Girl. So 
Alright, Red Dirt Girl from Emmy Lou Harris there. Wonderful slice of her bluegrass roots. And uh, she's always been uh, noted and highly sought after as a harmony partner. I mean, just name any kind of great singer-songwriter, particularly in that Texas sort of singer-songwriter movement, or a country singer. They've all, they've all, if they haven't duetted with her, they've wanted to, and that's for sure. She's really crossed over genres as well and sort of um, grown, uh, gained the appreciation of even that rock crowd a bit and the folk crowd. And um, moving on in this uh, Color My World podcast-themed episode part one, <laughs> we've got Touch of Grey by the Grateful Dead. And this is a much later uh, classic of theirs. Very well known because it's their only top 40 hit. It pe- I think peaked at number nine or so in 1987. It came out in their album In the Dark, which was their first studio album in over six years at the time. And, of course, it was um, really uh, pushed by a heavily popular video clip on MTV, which featured the band performing live, and then eventually they all were uh, in skeletal form performing their instruments, really kind of a quirky... It was a play upon the fact that the, one of the main uh, images, one of the main uh, artists rendering of the band had them in you know, skull and roses and all that stuff. But as far back as the early 70s, they were kind of pre- depicted that way. It was kind of like a symbol, a, uh, an unofficial logo of the band with the whole... You know, a guy with hair and everything and playing instruments, sort of semi-dressed, but as a, basically a skeleton... Anyway, the Grateful Dead had kind of been sliding into uh, professional and personal chaos in the late 70s, mainly around Jerry Garcia's uh, drug addictions and stuff. And then going into the 80s, his years of not taking care of himself pretty well. He had, you know, gained weight. His, uh, you know, stamina on stage was pretty badly affected. He had, you know, been uh, addicted to heroin for about a decade and had year for years smoked heavily. And uh, he lapsed into a diabetic coma in 1986 that he came out of and sort of renewed his vigor and his perspective and he would relapse a couple times more mind you and he passed away in 1995 of a heart attack looking like an ancient old man because he was pretty much gray he'd been graying since like the early 70s mind you but uh looking pretty much older than his uh 53 years at the time anyway and this song was kind of it was written before that whole diabetic coma thing but a new perspective on things that he'd survived death and everything like that that he'd pulled through, and it was kind of like a hopeful look to the future for the Grateful Dead, who were sort of finding a new, younger audience, and this kind of, you know, maybe people thought that they were going to have a second wind, that they were kind of become a popular uh, charting act, but this was sort of that one shot in the dark, <laughs> based on the albums called that anyway, and Touch of Grey, while fondly remembered, is not necessarily known as one of their signature tunes, but in the general public consciousness is well remembered, because of course it was one of their only hits and it's a catchy tune it's not surprising like it was a deserving big hit you know it has sort of 80s hallmarks of the that really uh punchy drum sound but also some keyboards from brett midland who was their uh, i want to say fourth keyboardist that they were on at the time and of the five that they had because later vince welnick was in the group although bruce hornsby was an official member i think all but one of them passed away and <laughs> isn't around today tom constantin who was a keyboardist in between stints for Ron Pigpen McKern, who did die in the late 60s. He's still kicking. Anyway, 
Let's take a listen to Touch of Grey by the Grateful Dead here on the Sound of Group Podcast. Right now, from 
All right, there were the great Grateful Dead with their only top 40 hit, a number nine hit, as I said earlier before we uh, kicked off that track, Touch of Grey. And uh, like a latter day, you know, success for them. There wasn't much more from the Grateful Dead, at least in terms of studio albums. I mean, they put a crap load of live releases over the years. And that uh, trickle, it was almost, it was comparatively a trickle compared to what came after. Just about everything they ever done. I mean, fans always trade those kind of things on bootleg, but... Officially, you know, the Grateful Dead's live over, you know, all the recordings, the concerts they did, which they recorded just about every one of them. I mean, they've all, just about all of them have come out. So if you wanted to hear 20 million versions of Dark Star or St. Stephen or, you know, Uncle John's band, you can get it <laughs> if you really want to. I mean, that's a little too in-depth and hardcore for me, but, you know, the Grateful Dead have a legion of fans called Deadheads that take it to new extremes. And, of course, they're vaunted for their live shows, which would... You know, have extended jam sections in each song and go on for hours and hours or whatever. They would just play forever. I guess LSD can help with that, right? <laughs> anyway, let's go on to the next colorful track here on Color My World podcast episode on the Sound of Groove podcast. We're going to go with uh, something involving the color green. It's the Green River. Another one of many signature tracks from the Great band, Creedence, Creedence Clearwater Revival, kind of a tongue twister, but more uh, commonly known by some people, to uh, avoid that tongue twisting, I guess, as CCR. Pretty much just a creative outlet uh, for John Fogarty. The other guys were decent sidemen, but, I mean, he pretty much was a one-man band. And in 1969, they were riding high. They were one of the highest-selling bands in the entire world, especially in the United States. And even their albums did well. I mean, their albums were, were I think, criminally underlooked or overlooked, underrated for a long time anyway i mean when they were going people just thought they were a singles band and they sold a lot of singles never had a number one hit oddly enough tons of number two hits but uh yeah they were just like a churning out great traditional bare bones rock and roll in in response to the whole psychedelic wave and uh they put out three different lps i mean none of their lps were that long until cosmos factory in 1970 they're all kind of like 25 to 30 minute real short quick ones so three lps was kind of like one and a half beetle lps in terms of length that they did because the beatles usually crammed a lot more on their particular albums but anyway three short but fantastic lps (laughs) first uh bayou country which is pretty good green river which is great and then willie and the poor boys which was even better and this is the second of those three that this is the lead cut and title track of another smashing uh, hit for Green for uh, Cleveland's Clearwater Revival. And years later, John Fogarty had a song on his own, uh, so, a solo record, uh, Centerfield, 1984, actually. And it was called The Old Man Down the Road. And he even got sued by his old record label boss, Saul Zance of uh, Fantasy Records, for plagiarizing himself. Sounding too much like one of his own hits. And this was the particular one. So, anyway... Why don't we take a gander, a little listen to this one. It's uh, 1969's Green River from the Credence Clearwater Revival here on the Sound of Groove Podcast.
All right, there was the smoky, lurking sound of CCR and a kind of a bayou homage called Green River. And they were into a lot of that, talking about, you know, the whole setting around New Orleans, southern Louisiana, the bayou. But they were from San Francisco. They were out in California, although they were all, you know, pretty much working-class backgrounds, not like they were hippies and stuff. And they kind of eschewed that whole dropping acid and, you know, playing long solos. It just got right to the point. They made the three-minute single in rock and roll and art form again, in a way, although they were kind of disparaged at the time. And Green River, right there, was another one of their many number two hits on the Billboard charts. And it wasn't actually written about in any place in New Orleans. It's just that uh, John Fogarty imagined it such as uh, in that way. But he was talking about a place that he had visited a lot for, you know, summer vacations, a vacation spot. Um, it was actually Puta Creek, which is in Winters, California. So he kind of pieced, you know, he'd do that with songs, he says, piece things together from his own experiences, his own childhood, his own life, and uh, kind of, you know, reimagine them in different settings. And it just sounded cooler, obviously, to talk about Green River as if it was there. He says he kind of got the idea from Green River being a type of, uh, like, slushy thing where you get lime. That, you know, like, that would be his preferred type of uh, sweet uh, confectionery. Well, I guess not confectionery, but, you know, sort of, like, cool uh, drink treat. And the lime version was called Green Green River, and that's you know, sort of the inspiration comes from. But, you know, that's just the greatness of being a songwriter who can piece together those things and turn it into something original. Anyway, so moving on with the Color My World podcast theme. Let's go with another one. It's called Blue. Have a Blue Moon with Heartache, a Roseanne Cash song. Veering more away from the country music that she was obviously well-known for, being the daughter of Johnny Cash and everything, into kind of a crossover pop sound. A little bit new wavy, you know. But uh, retaining a bit of uh, that uh, uh, South of the Mason-Dixon line charm. <laughs> But this was a um, another hit single off of a popular album for kind of a breakthrough one, Seven Year Ache. It was her third number one country hit. Really, sort of, it was a more more of a ballad, kind of a more serene track for her that um, she wrote herself and was produced by her husband at the time, Rodney Crowell or Crowell. I don't really know how they actually say it. Rodney, Crow, I'm gonna uh, assume it's Crowell if you're from the south, Crowell. Well, maybe that's if you're uh, from the north. I don't know. Anyhow, the album uh, called together a lot of different great uh, folk and country songwriters' tunes, like Keith Sykes and Steve Forbert, um, even some real traditional country tracks. She even covers a song from Tom Petty and Merle Haggard. It's really all over the map, and that's a good thing in this case. Anyway, let's listen to this uh, cut, Blue Moon with Heartache. One of the best tracks off there, and one of the best ballads she ever put out. Here it is, Roseanne Cash from 1980 on the Sound and Groove Podcast.
Okay, there was Roseanne Cash with Blue Moon with Heartache here on the Sound of Group podcast. We're going to continue on here with our uh, Color My World uh, themed podcast here, part one of two, of course. Uh, the second to last one of 2017 that I'm delivering to you, by the way, a little overdue. <laughs> Anyhow, that's okay. It's It, it came, didn't it? You know, don't be too, uh, don't be too bitter. <laughs> I hope you're not that it took this long. But anyhow, let's move on to a new track. It's White Lines, Don't Do It by... Mel Mel, uh, who was part of the great uh, early hip-hop outfit Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. But uh, this one was originally credited to Grandmaster Flash as well, but he had left Sugar Hill Records, the label that uh, had that group on it, over a dispute. And sort of in a spiteful way, they pretty much, well, not really so much spiteful as to promote the... Uh, the name recognition of Grandmaster Flash was strong thanks to The Message a couple years earlier, which was one of the first socially conscious uh, rap songs ever recorded and released obviously and uh, Mel Mel who was on that song as well uh, he did this particular track there was no Grandmaster Flash involved and yet Sugar Hill Records put his name on it to try to fool people you know kind of saying oh well you know what Grandmaster Flash is back with another and this is an anti-drug song it's particularly dealing with cocaine and crack and its uh, effects on the uh, on the public at large but mostly in the inner city uh, where not just drug abuse was the uh, after effect of it, but gang warfare and drug trade, basically, and how it uh, made for you know high crime rates and, and mortality rates and stuff in these uh, inner city ghettos in the 80s and stuff. So it's another socially conscious track, obviously. And this is from 1984. And uh, yeah, it's another one of those uh, monumental sort of landmark hip-hop tunes. Is the Well, it was called rap then, but you know, the hip-hop is what it sort of morphed into, the uh, genre name anyhow. Don't ask me to really explain that one, because even I'm not sure exactly how it did that. But I think rap was kind of the description of the way of composing, a way of, uh, of you know saying things. It was not singing, it's rapping, basically, it's to talk the lyrics. And hip-hop is the genre, if that makes any sense. It's kind of like, you know, crooning is part of jazz or pop or whatever. It's not Crooning is not a, is not a musical style, right? Anyway, we'll get right to it here on the Color My World podcast. It's White Lines Don't Do It by Mel Mel on the Sound of Group podcast. Here we go. Fun, baby. Base. 
Alright, there was White Lines Don't Do It, a sort of anti-cocaine track from Mel Mel. It was originally credited, like I said, Grandmaster and Mel Mel. Actually, some people put in the Grandmaster Flashport, but originally that was was credited to. It was in 1983, actually, not 1984. I slipped up a little bit earlier there, but eh, whatever. And uh, it was written by Mel Mel, and Mel being, you know, by the way, the first name is M-E-L-L-E, and the last one is like the more conventional M-E-L. 
It was uh, Sylvia Robinson who co-wrote it with uh, with him, and she was the founder of Sugar Hill Records with her husband. And uh, she had a long career in music as a writer, songwriter, singer, you know, CEO, record label executive, and all that stuff. Starting Sugar Hill Records up in the late 70s and really getting uh, hip-hop in the New York scene off the ground and exposing it to a more national audience. And uh, in the mid-50s, she uh, was part of a uh, somewhat popular duo called Mickey and Sylvia, which had a, you know, a huge hit in 1957 called Love is Strange, which kind of had like a really sign- uh, signature guitar part on it, in fact, and kind of yeah, a little bit of playful, somewhat erotic for a 1957 song where he says, what do you say when you call your lover boy and all this stuff? And Come here, lover boy. I don't remember. It goes on like that. You know, it's, you've probably heard it somewhere at some point. It's a rough kind of primitive recording, but it's, it's almost a little bit punkish for the time, but it was a number one R&B hit and almost a top ten pop hit. Anyway, Sylvia Robinson was uh, uh, deemed or nicknamed, I should say, the mother of hip-hop for her contributions. Anyway, that track was originally supposed to be a part of a cocaine-fueled party lifestyle, and then they added in the don't do it in brackets to kind of make people say, oh, well, you know, to, to get people to, you know, not think it was a pro-drug song for commercial interest because they didn't want to put it out there and have it seem like a celebration of uh, the use of the drug, which was prevalent as hell at the time, of course. We're talking mid-80s almost here. Anyway, let's move on from White Lines to another Color My World type track, huh? So the next song that I've selected to play for all of you is called Color Him Father by a group out of Washington, D.C., notably Funk and Soul, pardon me, called The Winstons. And uh, they were a multiracial outfit that uh, really hit, hit, hit it big with this particular song. It was one of those singles that was popular enough to become a gold record, selling over a million copies. And it was uh, voted the best rhythm and blues song for 1969 at the Grammy Awards. I mean, you know, not that those are, those are significant achievements for commercial success, obviously. Not that those are what the group should be defined by. But obviously, you know, Color Him Father is what they're mostly known for because... Other than that, they didn't have a lot of huge hits. But the B-side of that one, too, by the way, is a song called Amen, Brother. And it has a drum break in the middle of it, kind of a fast, sort of a more uh, propulsive, kind of almost Latin rhythm type of uh, drum break that uh, became known as the Amen break and was one of the most widely sampled ones in all of, uh, you know, I guess, whatever you call that, over-sampled music. So electronica, particularly. So hip-hop, drum and bass, particularly, where they usually speed it up and everything like that. If you... You know, uh, I suggest you look it up because you've all heard it somewhere at some point. And so, <laughs> because percussion breaks can't really all be differentiated from each other, there's not really a lot of money to be had in the uh, copyright ownership of those types of things and when songs sample that. But anyway, uh, so yeah, the B side of this one has its uh, fame too. But the A side was what made them the most money in the end, obviously. So I think the Winstons will probably look back and color and follow the A side as the real achievement. And the one that sort of gave them a little tiny piece of uh, commercial R&B lore, I guess you could call it. So it's the next track on this great podcast episode of Color My World. And it has the actual word in its title, right? So here we go. From 1969, it's the Winstons. Maybe you can call them one hit wonder or not. I don't know, but probably. (laughs) Here they are with Color Him Father. big and strong He goes to work each day and he stays all day long He comes home each night 
looking tired and beat. He sits down at the dinner table and has a bite to eat. Never a frown, always a smile. When he says to me, how's my child? I said that I've been studying hard all day in school. Trying very hard to understand the golden rule. I think I'll color this man father. Color him father. I think I'll color him love. Color him love. Said I'm gonna color him father. Color him father. I think I'll color the man love. Yes, I will. He says education is the thing if you want to compete. Because without his son, life ain't very sweet. I love this man and I don't know why. Except I'll need his strength until the day that I die. My mother loves him and I can tell by the way she looks at him when he holds my little sister Nell. I heard her say just the other day That if it hadn't have been for him She couldn't have found her way I think I'll color him father Color him father I'm gonna color him love Color him love I've got to color him father Color him love I think I'll color this man love Color him love in the war and she knows she and seven kids couldn't have gotten very far she says she thought that she could never love again and then there he stood with that big wide grin he married my mother and he took us in and now we belong to the man with that big wide There you go with Color Him Father, a rather wholesome tune for 1969 where things were kind of flying off the handle with revolution and hippies and all kinds of uh, anarchy and then of course the Manson murder. So things were getting a little dark in America and in the popular cultural world and the rock music world. Everything just seemed to be converging on this whole negativity but amidst it all there was some positivity and Color Him Father is kind of one of those tunes. It's about a uh, guy singing about a, a stepdad of his that took him and his mother in, married his mother, uh, who had seven kids and was widowed because her husband died in the Vietnam War. So it struck a nerve with, you know, an increasingly unpopular war at the time that was dividing Americans and everything like that. So Color and Father kind of hit the tenor of the times. That partly, I would say, I mean, it's a good tune, obviously, if you just listen to it, you know. Uh, that partly kind of, you know, made it the success that it was. So, yeah, that, uh, the Winstons had their little uh, dent in the, uh, mu in the music world in 1969, thanks to that track. Uh, didn't hear much from them afterward, uh, but whatever, you know, there they go. They, they, had their, they had their moment in the sunshine, and not many bands who tour and record professionally can even say that, right? So, time for one last track, okay? Here on this part, first part of the uh, Color My World-themed podcast. Anyway, it's called Black Mariah by Todd Rundgren. And, of course, Todd is the a wizard, a true star. You know, some people describe him as. That was the title, by the way, of his album that came after this one. This particular track is on. This is a slide opener on the epic double LP something slash anything. So I put the slash in there because that's how it's written out. But it's, you know, I don't think you're supposed to say it out loud, the slash. But I'm just putting it in there for uh, context's sake. 
It's uh, a real sprawling four-sided album. Uh, the fourth side was all done live in the studio with a band, but the first three sides are almost all recorded by Todd, who would basically go into the studio with a song he'd already written and kind of with a click, put a click track toward it, like play the drum track first almost, or play the piano part in the you know, with a drum part on top. You know, there's always various ways he layered it because he was a you know, one-man band in the studio, had a lot of different musical abilities, and had a lot of experience uh, at the Bearsville Records where he started at, which is the Albert Grossman label. He was a manager of Bob Dylan in the band, by the way, if you don't know. And uh, that's where he got his uh, cut his chops, so to speak, after his group The Naz broke up late 1969 uh, group out. He was out of Philadelphia, Upper Darby to be exact. Anyway, he had started getting his, uh, you know, was more renowned for being a producer, I guess, or, you know, doing studio work. And then all of a sudden his solo career started to take off with this, his third studio record uh, release. It came after uh, his first album called Runt, which is sort of like a band, a fictitious kind of band. It was mostly him that he called Runt, which sort of sounded like the first part of his name. And then a second one called Runt, the Ballad of Todd Rundgren, is a little more polished and a little more, you know, uh, precise and showed his burgeoning singer-songwriter ability at the piano, which, you know, he kind of channeled a bit of a Laura Nero, and sometimes it was comp compared to Carol King, who, of course, broke out huge in 1971. But Todd didn't really want to be in that vein. He wanted to be more experimental and more out there while he, you know, produced some big hit albums like the New York Dolls and later Meatloaf, Bad Out of Hell. He was working on a renowned solo career. Sort of a, he became a cult artist after this. Because this album, Something Anything, had some hits on it. So he kind of retreated from that whole, you know, idea that he was a big, uh, you know, wonderful Elton John of America sort of thing, because he had a lot of piano-based music on this album. And this track is not one of those. This is more of an electric side. It's, you know, shredding on the electric guitar type of thing. It's a little more brooding and slow of a song. It's called Black Mariah, as I said. And, uh, you know, it's a little more of his Hendrix side. I mean, he, he loved the heavy stuff, too, not just the light sort of, like, you know, airy pop. But anyhow... Let's get to it. It's Black Mariah in the Sound of Group Podcast by Todd Rundgren.
Okay, that right there was Todd Rundgren with his heavy Black Mariah on the Santa Group podcast. One of the one of the real more um, sludge kind of cuts on that great album, something anything. Where he, he ran the gamut of his abilities. It was sort of a tour de force. By people say, "Oh, the best album Paul McCartney never made." But I don't know if Paul was even as real, you know, cut it to the core as Todd could do with uh, the heavier songs. But you know, after that, he kind of went toward a progressive direction with a lot of synthesizers, keyboards, and uh, production flourishes that were really elaborate for the time period. And he kind of lost some fans along it. Some critics even turned on him, too, after this. But there was that peak moment where critics, fans, record buyers all loved him. Anyway, that's the end of this podcast episode. We will catch up with you for part two coming up soon. Till then, this is Evan Dobkin saying sayonara and see you next time. Mm-hmm.